What we've talked about over the last couple of weeks is that I don't want anything in my life that would hinder that from anyone else. Because I want to check my life to make sure that my life is the most effective witness and reflection for Him. Well, as we've looked at that at the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, what Paul did is the reason he started talking about this was because there was a specific area in their lives that he wanted to deal with. And that, if you'll remember back in chapter 8, was concerning meat sacrificed to idols. He wanted them to think about, okay, here's something in our culture that could potentially be a hindrance to someone else. And so we need to think about this. And we talked about that a little bit. And so Paul basically talked about the specific, and then he kind of branched out of that, and he began to talk about some of the general principles that we've brought out. We've kind of gone in the other direction. As we've looked at the meat-sacrificed idols, I don't know about you, but I don't struggle with meat-sacrificed idols. It's not really a part of our culture because we don't see that animal sacrifice like they might have seen in this culture. So we've looked at the broader principles first, and now we find ourselves coming down to some specific areas, some areas that affect our own world today, areas that could affect our witness to others or could get us in such a position that we could not effectively point others to Christ. Over the next couple of weeks, that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at potential pitfalls for Christians today. We're going to talk about three specific areas of life for people today in our culture that could impact our effectiveness for Christ. Today, the specific area we're going to talk about is alcohol. Now, I want to share with you that we've never specifically dealt with this topic at New Hope. But now we're at a place in God's Word where we've got to consider the topic, and that's what we're going to do today. Now, I do want to share something with you as we start today, that this, this message is not intended to be legalistic. Legalism says this. Now, I know many of you came from backgrounds that were very legalistic. Legalism says this. Here's what you must do to be accepted by God. Here's, what, here's the actions that you must take or not take in order for God to accept you as His child. Now, what, what causes us to be accepted by God? What causes us to enter into a relationship with God where He says, You are my child? Is that anything I do or don't do? Absolutely not. The only thing that causes me to be accepted by God, it doesn't matter what issues we talk about, the only thing that decides whether I'm accepted by God is that Jesus Christ, I have sincerely accepted Him as my Savior and I've turned my life over to Him. Now the difference between legalism and understanding, there's a difference between uh, just legalism and understanding that, that there's rules, that there's guidelines, that there's things, there's boundaries that God has given us for living. There's a difference between saying, here's the hoops that you must jump through for me to accept you. That's legalism. There's a difference between that and God giving us parameters for experiencing the kind of life He wants for us. Also, I need to share with you, just by way of our attitude and our heart of what we're trying to share today, this is not trying to be judgmental. If by the end of this message, if by the end of this day, you come to a different conclusion personally, that's between you and the Lord. But after today, I want you to be able to say with, current, with firm conviction before God that after knowing what you know, you have complete confidence that you can have this in your life. And I've got to share with you, regardless of how you feel about it, I'm responsible for teaching God's Word for you. I'm not a hireling. And I'm going to tell you today what I believe is the truth as a shepherd, as God's under-shepherd. What are some things that we need to be careful about as Christians? So today we're going to talk about alcohol as a potential pitfall for Christians today. Now, what are the effects of alcohol in our culture today? Again, we're not going to look at a specific passage. We're going to kind of bounce around through Scripture. But I want us to start out by thinking about this. We're wanting to think about pitfalls. We're wanting to think about things that could be dangerous for us as Christians. We might ask, is alcohol really that dangerous? 
Well, let's look at some statistics. Now, these come from a couple of other well-known pastors and, and some research that I've done myself. But the statistics tell us this. Alcohol, in, in terms of usage, is second only to caffeine in the number of people who use a particular substance. 50% of all traffic fatalities involve alcohol. Two out of five Americans will be involved in alcohol-related crashes in your lifetime. Every weekend when you're on the road, one in 10 people are impaired by alcohol. From 10 p.m. to 1 a.m., one in 13, and from 1 a.m. to 6 a.m., one in seven people are drunk. Of accidents involving single vehicles, half of them are drunk. They're, they're alcohol impaired. Over 17,000 people died in alcohol-related accidents in one year in the late 1990s. That's one person every 30 minutes. So that means by the end of this message, according to how long I go today, by the end of this message, there'll be one to two people that have died as a result of alcohol-related accidents, or at least in that year. In one 10-year period between the 1980s and the 1990s, four times as many people were killed in alcohol-related accidents as were killed in the Vietnam War. Isn't that amazing? Four times as many people. From 1982 to 1995, 300,000 people died in alcohol-related crashes. Someone has said this, that's like a, a 747 jet going down every week for 14 years with four to 500 people on those jets. That's how many people died during that, during that period. One person every 30 seconds is injured in an alcohol-related crash. Now listen to this, 75% of all high schoolers drink. 50% of all junior hires drink. 450,000 teenagers are considered alcoholics. Now, when I ask you today, I wonder where was the first place that those young people first were introduced to alcohol? It's estimated that 70% of U.S. high school students have had some form of alcohol in the last month. So that means if we took our teenagers and we had youth group tonight, out of those 20 teenagers that are there, 14 have had alcohol in some form in the last month. Approximately 20% of all adolescents can be described as problem drinkers, and 7% are considered alcoholics. Let's talk about college students. One in three college students drink to get drunk. One out of every three students drink so they can get drunk. Students spend $5.5 billion per year on alcohol. And listen to this. More undergraduates will die from alcohol-related causes than will get Master of Arts degrees or PhDs combined. Isn't that amazing to think about? 60% of college women diagnosed with sexually transmitted diseases were drunk when it happened. About 40% of Americans have direct experience in their family with alcohol abuse and alcoholism. Probably many of you today, if we ask you to stand up or raise your hand, if you said, has alcohol in some way affected your family in a detrimental way, it says here that 40% of you could raise your hand. At least, wouldn't we say 40% probably. 25% of all family problems are alcohol-related. Murder, rape, child abuse all go together with it. Over 40% of all violent deaths. We could go on and on, couldn't we? With the statistics to say something that we've got to watch out for. And by the way, one half of all ordained ministers drink. So that's, that's between me and Tim, at least one of us. And it ain't me. And it's not just other people. In our church today, according to statistics, those who are in Southern Baptist churches, almost 50% drink. And one quarter of all Southern Baptist teenagers have used alcohol in the last 12 months. Marvin Block, a former chairman of the American Medical Association Committee on Alcoholism, said this, Ours is a drug-oriented society. 
largely because of alcohol, because of its social acceptance. Alcohol is rarely thought of as a drug, but a drug it is in scientific fact. What about a country, you might say, well, right, we don't know how to handle our alcohol in America. You know, what about a country that really knows the finer qualities of alcohol and how to appreciate it for what it's worth? What about a country like France, let's say? In France, the average person drinks 65 gallons of wine a year. Now, if my, if my measurements are correct, according to the other statistics about Americans, Americans drink about two gallons of wine a year. 65 gallons a year. More than any other citizen in the entire world. Ten times more people die there from alcohol-related causes than the United States, and alcohol is their biggest health problem. I didn't share with you that Americans consume 416 million gallons of liquor, 570 million gallons of wine, and 575 billion gallons of beer every year. And you might say, okay, Robbie, those are statistics. Let me share with you that I believe those statistics are evidence of what the Bible has already told us. Proverbs chapter 20, which I ask you to turn to early, and we're going to flip around in different places in Proverbs and a couple other passages. But Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1 says this. It says, Wine is a mocker, and strong drink a brawler. And whoever, now the New American Standard here says, Whoever is intoxicated by it is not wise. Somebody say, See there? See there? It's drunkenness. It's, it's being drunk that's wrong. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. But actually, some of the other translations, I believe, are closer here because the, the literal translation there is whoever is led astray by it, whoever errs by it. Now, certainly intoxication would be to that point, wouldn't it? But more specifically, the Bible is trying to tell us whoever is led astray by alcohol, you better watch out for it. Alcohol is dangerous. Now, again, somebody says, but Robbie... I realize, and I know all the facts, and I know, and, and I, I, those are those statistics are amazing. I know the dangers that alcohol can pose, but isn't it true that the Bible only condemns drunkenness? Does the Bible condemn all forms of alcohol? Well, first of all, let's talk about drunkenness. I hope that you know today, and I'm going to assume that you know today, that drunkenness being taken over by alcohol is absolutely a sin. When we allow anything else to take over our body besides Jesus Christ, that's a sin. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, that's excessiveness, that's, that's overdoing it. But be filled with the Spirit of God. Only God is to control our body, right? But I want to ask you a question. When am I drunk? Some people say 0.05. Some people say 0.08. Some people say 0.10. How long can I go down the road of drinking until I'm actually getting into sin? Now, once you begin to ask that question in any area of your life, I want you to think, I want you to see these red flags go up. How far can I go down this area before I'm actually getting into sin? You don't want to establish a pattern in your life of seeing how close you can get to sin before you actually are doing it. But back to the question, is all alcohol in all forms wrong according to God? Well, let's hold that question for just a minute. I think the next thing that we need to think about is this. When we're dealing with alcohol today, is the wine of the Bible the same as alcohol today? Is what we are drinking today, is that the same as what we find in the Bible? Let me share with you what I found out about this. In the Bible and in Hebrew and Greek sources from ancient times, when wine is referred to in those periods, for the most part it can refer to this. Wine could refer to the grapes that are still on the cluster, that are still growing on the vine, 
Wine can refer to unfermented, freshly squeezed grape juice, just like you get in your grocery store and you drink for breakfast or wherever. I don't like grape juice, <laughs> but just the regular grape juice that you drink. It can refer to, to that. It can refer to unfermented grape concentrate that had been obtained from... What they would do is they would, they would boil the grapes, and out of that would come this paste-like substance that they could store more easily. It was kind of like a concentrate. And what they'd do is they'd store it, and then they'd bring it back out, and they'd put some water or liquid with it to make a drink. It can also refer to a fermented grape juice of some kind. So wine, yes, can refer to an alcoholic beverage. It can refer to a fermented drink. But what we're also seeing is that wine does not always refer to that. What tells us the difference? The context. We find out from the context what the Bible is talking about. Now let me also share this with you. Even when the Bible refers to a fermented grape juice, the most alcohol content that could be brought about by that process was about 9 to 11% of alcohol in that drink. Now, as we do a study of, of how they did things back during these times, we find out that under normal circumstances, the people back during these days mixed that with water. Ancient sources say this, anywhere from 3 to 20 parts water to 1 part wine was mixed with that alcoholic beverage. Otherwise, it would have been considered a strong drink, which basically would be like our liquor. Now, one source has said this. If the wine was fermented and served mixed, unmixed, which means without water, listen to this. Wine that had fermented and gotten to a content of about 9 to 11% alcohol, if that was served unmixed, not mixed with water, not diluted with water, it was considered barbaric, defiling, and incapable of being blessed by the rabbis. Another author said this, even among the civilized pagans, people who didn't know God and didn't walk with him, drinking unmixed wine or drinking wine that was unmixed with water was considered stupid and barbaric. It would have been considered strong drink, which the Bible universally condemns. Now I want you to hang with me as we think about this for just a minute because I think it's very important in considering is what we're consuming today, are we con are we comparing apples with apples? Or is it apples to oranges? Now let's think about it for just a moment. Since the least that would have been mixed would have been three parts water, even the highest alcoholic content for a beverage during that time would have been around 2.75%. And from the evidence that we have, it seems that most people combined even more water from 5 to 10 to 20 parts water. So if you combine that much, if you go to 10 parts water, you're down to 1% alcoholic content. If you go to 20 parts water, you're down to 0.5% alcoholic content. Now, since around 3.2% alcoholic content is needed to be called an alcoholic drink, now what do we have? If we've got 1% or half a percent, what do we have? Purified water. Many times in the, old, in the ancient times, they used alcohol to purify their water. They would boil it or they would use other means, but alcohol was one of the ways that they could know that some of the bacteria was taken out of the water. Now compare those percentages that I just shared with you with the alcoholic content of beverages today. Wine is about 12 to 15 percent alcoholic content. Liquor is about 40 to 50 percent plus. I guess you can go about as high as you want with liquor. Beer is lower. Beer is around 5% or so, or sometimes even a little bit less. But it still would have been as much as 2 to 10 times more than the wine mixed with water back during these days. Now, let me share something with you. I don't want to get bogged down with numbers. Is it, is it about what percentage of alcohol makes God happy? 
Is that what today? That's not what it's about, about today. It's intended to help us see this, that I believe today that what we drink leans much more in the direction of what the Bible would have called strong drink. Because of the level of alcoholic content in that beverage, it would lean much more towards what the, the godly during this time and even ungodly people alike would consider dangerous and destructive to a person's life. So based upon what we've shared, I believe that most of the normal use of wine and alcohol that we see in the Bible was probably not the same as the beverages that we have today. Now, even, even if we don't agree with that, if we don't like that, let's, let's move on. Let's think about what are the effects of alcohol on me? We've talked about what's the effects of We can look at our culture. What's going on in our culture and how is it being affected by alcohol? What is alcohol as we're comparing it with what we have today and what we had back during that time? And I want to strongly assert to you that I believe that what we have today, the Bible would say, is strong drink. It's something that we should never touch. But what are the effects of alcohol on you? Well, let's look at another stat. An estimated 10 to 15 percent of every person who ever takes a drink of alcohol will become an alcoholic. Now today, there are some of us sitting in this room that can affirm that because you're an alcoholic. Many of us today are probably struggling, maybe without anybody else even knowing about that struggle going on in our life. Alcohol reduces activity in your central nervous system. It produces loose muscle tones, it, the loss of fine motor coordination. It causes impairment of balance, speech, vision, reaction time, and hearing. Judgment and self-control are reduced. Caution, reason, memory, all those are impaired. One ounce of alcohol increases the required amount of time to make a decision by 10%. It increases errors due to lack of attention by 35%. And it increases, it retards muscular reaction by 17%. After three bottles of beer, there's an average of 13% memory loss. Youth who drink, now listen to this, youth, young people who drink at any level are seven and a half more times likely to use an illegal drug and 50 times more likely to use cocaine than a youth who never drank alcohol. Alcohol is a major cause in 36% of all suicides. What are we trying to say? Alcohol is detrimental to our lives. Let's look at some scripture that talks about it. Proverbs chapter 23. Flip over a couple of uh, chapters there. Proverbs 23 verses 29 and following. Listen to what the Bible says in warning us about alcohol. It says, Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who linger long over wine. Those who go to taste mixed wine. Do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. At the last, it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things and your mind will utter perverse things. And you will be like one who lies down in the middle of the sea. Or like the one who lies down on top of a mass. They struck me, but I did not become ill. They beat me, but I did not know it. When shall I wake and I will seek another drink? The Bible says that alcohol brings some detrimental effects to our lives. First of all, it brings emotional and personal problems. It says, who has woe? Who has sorrow? Brokenness in our life. A person who drinks alcohol. It says, it brings social and relational problems to our life. It says, who has contentions? Problems between other people and complaining. Difficulty between other people. It brings physical problems. Who has wounds without cause? Now, if you've ever drank alcohol, and if you've ever taken advantage of it a little bit, you know what wounds without cause means, don't you? Because you've probably gotten a situation where you woke up and said, I got hurt, and I don't know how I got hurt. 
wounds without cause. Redness of eyes. The physical effects of alcohol. Alcohol can capture us. It can, listen to me, it can grab hold of our lives very, very easily. It says, don't linger over it. Don't search it out. The warning is issued. Don't look at it when it's red and it's beautiful. Don't admire its sparkle. Don't be captivated by its smooth taste. That kind of sounds like a description of a wine connoisseur, doesn't it? Of somebody who holds it up and looks at it and says, oh, isn't that beautiful? And isn't it sparkling? Oh, how smooth it is when it goes down. And I go to the vineyards and I go to the... And this is also elegant and so wonderful. But the Bible says, don't do that. And why does the Bible say that? Because God doesn't want me to be captivated by anything else but Him. He doesn't want me to be mastered by anything but His Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. You say, well, Robbie, why is it such a big deal? It says, according to the Bible, that it stings, that it bites. It's like a dangerous snake that we, we feel like it's okay for us to get kind of close to. And then all of a sudden, before we know it, what happens? It bites us, it takes us, and it hurts us. We're caught. We're in trouble. The Bible says that it brings moral and spiritual problems. It says your eyes will see strange things. Again, if you've ever drank alcohol, you've probably experienced that, haven't you? I saw little men dancing on the wall. Or, you know, I saw all these kind of crazy things. It brings moral and spiritual problems. It leads us down a road that's not led by God's Spirit. That our heart, that we utter perverse things. I, some of the worst things I ever had said to me in my whole life was a friend of mine who was standing out in the middle of the ocean drunk as a skunk. And he just cursed up a storm and just told me everything he thought about me. His heart, I know he didn't mean it. I don't think he did. But his heart uttered perverse things that he didn't even know at the time. It brings problems. It can cause you, like my friend, to make a fool of yourself. He says, we'll be like one who lies down in the middle of the sea. I mean, you're just sitting in the boat. Now, this isn't Jesus walking on water stuff, okay? This is you're sitting in the boat, and hey, I think I'll just go lay down on the ocean. You ever seen anybody do dumb things when they're drinking? You ever seen anybody make a fool of theirself? Have you ever done it? It'll make you vulnerable to danger. It's like one who lies down on top of the mast, on top of the lookout, it's saying. It's what it's saying is it makes us less alert to danger coming. It relaxes us. It relaxes our morals, one person said. And listen to this. I want to give you a couple other verses that I think are very important here. That Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1, did you see what it said? It says, Wine is a mocker, strong drinker, a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not what? Alcohol is not on the path to wisdom. You might use alcohol and never go astray. You might never get go astray. But you can't guarantee that. Not to the degree of someone who says, I will not have this in my life, and they can know that they'll never be led astray by it. Alcohol is not on the path to wisdom. But I want to share something else with you that I think is pretty important for us to think about as Christians. Proverbs chapter 31. Flip over to the last proverb in Proverbs. Proverbs 31 is usually known because of it's talking about the excellent wife. And it's a great chapter for that. But in, in, in chapter 31 verse 4, the Bible tells us that alcohol is not for leaders. What does it say? It says, It is not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to desire strong drink. For they will drink and forget what is decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. In the Bible, kings 
and spiritual leaders, those with a responsibility for others are told to stay away from alcohol. They have too much riding on their shoulders to take a chance with the dangers of alcohol. That's why at New Hope, you can always know that Tim and myself and any other pastoral staff and our wives will not, we will completely abstain from alcohol. In the future, when we have deacons, we're going to ask them to make a commitment that you and your wife will completely abstain from alcohol. It's not because we're too good. It's not because we're holier than thou. We just got too many people that we're responsible for to take a risk as leaders. Alcohol is not for leaders. And I want to add something else that I think that probably all of us need to think about. In a sense, as followers of Christ, aren't all of us leaders? The Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, it's not talking to me, it's not talking to, to Tim necessarily, it is talking to us, but not just us specifically, but it says, but you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The Bible says that you are kings, that you are priests. Revelation chapter 1 verse 6 says, And he has made us to be kingdom and priests to his God and Father. What does the Bible say? There's a sense in which you are a leader for God. And the Bible says that alcohol is not for leaders. It's something to think about, isn't it? And that's what, that's what I want to take us to the next point is number four. What are the effects of alcohol on others? Now, in regards to alcohol and its place in our lives, we've looked at a lot of information but really, that's not the point of what we've been talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. The point of what we've been talking about is this. How can my life make an impact for others? Now, after all that we've looked at today, you might still say, I appreciate the concern, Robbie. I appreciate the warning, but I honestly don't think that the alcohol today is much different than ancient times, and it doesn't affect me like you're describing. I'm different. I can handle it. I have freedom in this area. Isn't that what we've been talking about in chapters 8 and 9? I have perfect freedom in a specific area of my life. But you've still got one more consideration to make in your life. How does me using alcohol affect my impact on other people? How could it make my life a hindrance for someone else's spiritual walk? 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 24 says this, Let no one seek his own good but that of his neighbor. My life is no longer about me, is it? My life is about you and my neighbor and people who are watching my life. Romans chapter 14, verse 7 says, For not one of us lives for himself, and not one of us dies for himself. The Bible says that my life is no longer lived for just me. It's lived for you and for God. Now, maybe you found freedom to drink alcohol, but one out of ten people that you influence to drink alcohol with you will not have that same freedom. Did you hear that? One out of ten people that your life influences in that way will not have the same freedom. That's why we will not have alcohol involved in church events when we're having church family things together. And I would challenge you that as you, as you get together as a church family and do things together, that you would make that same commitment. Maybe you, like many of the Corinthians, maybe you feel completely free to drink. But is my Christian life just about my rights? I want to tell you today, I used to drink. When I was in high school, there was about two, two to three years of my life 
that I drank and I enjoyed whatever benefit there was from alcohol. But I have to tell you today, the greatest regret that I have of my first few years of following Christ is that I influenced more people to drink alcohol than I did to come to Jesus Christ. I was the partier. I was the ringleader. I was the one who helped everybody else get it. We were underage, and we, you know, we'd get, go to a certain store, and they know my name and help everybody else. That was the influence that I had on people's lives rather than leading them to Jesus. Is my life just about me now, just because I enjoy it, just because I like it, or is it about doing what's best for others? Romans chapter 14 talks about this. We don't have time really to look at all of Romans 14, but it's really a corollary with 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and really goes into, into detail about, about this, this topic that we're talking about. It says it in verse 21 and verse 19, it says, So then we pursue things which make for peace and building up one another. In verse 21, it says, He's made a commitment. It is good not to eat meat, that's meat sacrificed to idols, or to drink wine, or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. By the way, I want to challenge you to think about something. We're not just talking about our church family. We're not just talking about our neighbors. But I want you to think about your spouse. I want you to think about your kids. The reason that I started drinking alcohol in high school was because I had someone in my family who normalized it for me. As I was growing up, I saw alcohol as something that I would never touch. But then as I was going through high school, there was somebody in my family who basically said to me, it's not that bad. It's not that big a deal. And then I had a friend who came back from summer break and he said, you know, I had some when I was on, on the summer break and it's not that bad, it's not that big a deal. And so for the next two to three years of my life, I spent enjoying the, quote, benefits of alcohol. Can I tell you, nothing good ever came out of that. All the, most of the regrets that I have in my life came during that time. Is it all because of alcohol? No, it's because of a desire of my heart. It was an attitude problem that I had that I wasn't following Christ. But one of the key pieces to that was that someone led me down that route by normalizing it for me. Do you want to be that person in someone else's life? Isaiah chapter 5, verse 22. Listen to this. It says, Woe to those who are heroes in drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink. What's the Bible trying to say to us? If we, if we are a hero in influencing others to enjoy the finer qualities of alcohol... The Bible says, woe to that person because there's going to be a good number of those people who go astray in their lives. Even if you've experienced seeming freedom in your life, are you careful that your life does not become a stumbling block for someone else? I want to answer a few other questions that I think people probably ask sometimes. Well, Robbie, didn't Jesus turn water into wine? Well, we don't know specifically what kind of wine that was. It could have been unfermented or it could have been fermented. Again, what do we say? The, the context tells us what it was. But how could we imagine, I want you to think for just a moment, how could we imagine that the first miracle Jesus ever did to reveal his glory, and by the way, on an occasion where there was a young bride who may very well conceive that night, knowing the effects, because he's God, knowing the effects that alcohol could have had on that conception, how could we conceive that the Lord himself would have provided an intoxicating beverage for that group of people? From what the rest of the Bible tells us about alcohol, I cannot believe that Jesus would have done that. That was the way that he revealed his glory. That was the first time that he ever showed us how powerful and mighty he was. Number two, isn't wine involved in the Lord's Supper? You know, I think many people don't realize that Jesus, as far as I know, never used the word wine. 
And in the context of the Lord's Supper, do you know the terms that he used? He used the, the words, and you've, you've probably heard me say it. He used the word cup, and he used the fruit of the vine. Why? Because his emphasis was on the natural process of the fruit of the vine, not on fermented juice. Would Jesus himself, now listen to this, let's just think about it for just a moment. Would he have instituted one of the most meaningful events in the lives of his people with a substance that would have potentially excluded one-tenth of all people who ever came to him? Would he want us to celebrate something that we know that in this congregation, possibly a tenth of us would struggle as a result of it? I want you to also remember something else. As we think about the Passover and as we think about the Lord's Supper, the bread that was used for the Passover, what kind of bread was that? It was unleavened bread. Do you know why they used unleavened bread? In the Bible, leaven is used to demonstrate man's pride. Our puffed upness is the word that I've made up. But leaven shows that, that yeast has been added to the bread. And what does that bread do? It rises. It's a symbol of man's efforts. The Bible says that we're to use unleavened bread in the Lord's Supper because his body was pure with nothing added to it by us. Well, let's think about the juice for a second. Would he want us to use a substance that yeast had affected for fermentation? No, it was to represent his pure blood with no yeast or no other substance to change it. It was the fruit of the vine, grape juice, or if you want to call it wine in that sense, it was wine. It was the fruit of the vine. So what about when Paul wrote Timothy? He said, use a little wine for your stomach's sake. Well, that would be nice for me and Tim, wouldn't it? If Tim has a tummy ache, and I say, just go get you a bottle of wine. That was a clear example, I believe, of the Bible showing the medicinal usage of wine. Remember, they didn't have CVS back during this time. Paul couldn't just say, go to your family doctor and get a prescription. We don't know what was wrong. Maybe the water was bothering his tummy, and it was, he wanted him to use it for the purification part. Maybe it was that he actually had some stomach problems. I mean, sometimes being a pastor brings stomach problems. And uh, by the looks of your faces today, I'm going to have some of those after it's over. <laughs> Let's lighten it up a little bit in here. But they didn't have a CVS, did they? They didn't have a drugstore. Proverbs chapter 31 that we just looked at even describes alcohol, and it has a use as a narcotic, doesn't it? It does have its place. But by the way, we don't need it for that purpose today, do we? How many of us would go to the doctor and the doctor would say, hey, just go out and get some Jack Daniels? You know, if you take two or three uh, shots a day, that'll chase the doctor away. No, doctors have figured up the right dosages of the right amount of drug, and sometimes it does have, I mean, you drink NyQuil, but that is a dosage of something that has been seen to be effective for medicinal reasons. I also noticed something interesting about the fact that Paul had to tell Timothy to take that. As a young pastor, he had had such a commitment to staying away from alcohol that he had to be told to use it by Paul in order for him to even use it. He had such a commitment that I'm going to stay away from that. Now here's a great one. Won't I be better able to witness if I drink? I'm going to share you a little, a little story. with When we first started New Hope, we had a uh, baptism. And after that baptism, we were going to go over to somebody's house and, and we were going to have a baptism party. Well, the person that was going to have host the baptism party wasn't a member of New Hope, but they very kindly and graciously said, come on over to our house. But this person had pretty freely shared with me that they enjoyed alcohol from time to time. That's fine. We never even addressed that or talked about that. 
But I knew that there may be a possibility that if we go over for a party, that maybe she's thinking, oh. so I just talked to her about it. I said, you know, just wanted to let you know, when we have church family events, we don't have alcohol involved. And one of the things, that, you know, it's kind of bothered her, and so we began to talk and share about it a little bit. And one of the things she said was, well, I feel like if I stopped drinking, that I wouldn't be as good a witness. That people would think I'm strange or weird. And this, this lady had a daughter, and I said, I kind of hope you never hear that same reasoning from your daughter. That I need to do this, or I need to do that, so my friends will see me more normal, and I can bring them to Christ. The challenge of the New Testament is, be so different that others will see the difference and want that kind of a Savior. You might say, well, what about being all things to all men? That means doing everything that I can to point them to Jesus. I've never seen alcohol lead anybody to Jesus. I've never seen that pointing anybody to Christ. And it could very easily point them away. So here's what I want to challenge you with today. Why would I drink alcohol? I want you to think about that today. Why would I have that as part of my life? Is it because it relaxes me? Let God be your relaxer. Is it because it gives me confidence? Let God be your identity. Is it because I just enjoy it? Well, maybe you rightfully should be able to enjoy it, all things being equal. But your life is not your own. It doesn't hurt me, but it might hurt someone else. So I'm challenging you today. I commend to you to consider total abstinence from alcohol for your own good and for the good of others. If you never drink alcohol, you can never become an alcoholic. If you never drink alcohol, you can never influence someone else to be an alcoholic. Now, I shared with you today, if you come to a different conclusion than what I find biblically, if you can defend that biblically, and you, if you can feel right before God that that's what you need to do with your life, that's between you and God, and I will not judge you for that. And no one here, by the way, who believes that alcohol should be abstained from should judge anyone else. We've all been judged, haven't we, on the cross. Can I share with you why I'm sharing this with you today? I hope you know that I love you. I hope you know that I don't want to see anything enter into your life that could move you away from Christ, that could cause destruction and pain in your life to the extent that something like alcohol could. That's our heart today. It's not to condemn anybody, but to commend to you a way that I believe would be safer and stronger for your life and for influencing others for Him. You know, I hope that today maybe somebody's here and, and you know, I, I kind of think that maybe somebody's here and they say, boy, you know, this is one of those churches they stand up, you know, and they get mad and they stomp their foot and they say, this is what's wrong in the world. Y'all know that's not our heart, don't you? If you're here today and this is your first time here, you just came on a Sunday that we specifically are talking about a specific issue. And by the way, I don't mean to chase you off, but the next couple of weeks we're going to talk about a couple of more. Because Paul did that. He said, listen, guys, we need to make application of God's truth. But listen to me today. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, it does not matter one hill of beans whether you drink or not, really. What's most important is that you know Jesus as your Savior. And what we're trying to challenge and encourage and equip our people with today is this, that we don't want there to be anything in our lives that would lead you astray and would clog the flow of God being able to speak to your heart through our lives. And so what I want you to hear today is this. Not that God's saying to you, here's what you can do, here's what you can't do. Which, by the way, wouldn't it be awful nice of him as a parent to say, be careful about things? But he's not being legalistic. He's saying, I love you, I care about you. And the reason we're sharing this with his people is because we want to be everything we can be to point you to him. That's the greatest story.
that we could ever tell. Jesus died on this cross that we rep that's represented by the cross behind me. He was buried. He rose again so that he could die for your sins, no matter what they are today. Alcohol may not even be a single bit of a struggle for you, but there's something else in your life that's keeping you from him. Today, he wants you to be saved. He wants you to accept him as your savior. Maybe you are here today and you have accepted Christ as your Savior. You say, right, I, I just never have thought about this. I, I didn't think it was a big deal. I, I thought the Bible really, you know, it's kind of, it's okay or not. I hope you've got some more to think about today. I hope there's something more to chew on. And maybe God's spoken to your heart that this is something I need to make a commitment to Him that I'm going to completely give up so that I can be a better influence for others. Whatever God's speaking to you about today, would you come? Would you stand for Him?